0: Cribs is a TV show that takes its viewers on a tour of somebody's crib. And for folks not as cool as I am, crib means house. Yo, crib is where yo live, man. There's actually several different episodes of Cribs or versions of Cribs. There's MTV Cribs for hipsters, and there's CMT Cribs for country music fans, and there's teen Cribs for teenagers, if you want to see Mariah Carey's New York penthouse or you'd like to see Carmela Anthony's country estate, tune in to Cribs. And if you want to see God's crib, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. For the apostle John takes us on a tour of the king's crib. Suddenly the curtain separating time from eternity gets pulled back. And the door to heaven opens. John's tour of heaven begins in verse 1 of chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now here's a few questions we should ask. First, John is about to be shown things which must take place After this, what then is the this? Well, for the last two chapters in Revelation, we've been discussing the church. What John sees from here on in Revelation takes place after the church age. And since we are the church, that means that the plagues depicted in chapter 6 to 19, what we call great tribulation, are yet future. Which leads to a second question. If all that happens after the church age, if all this happens after the church age, what then happens to the church? Now remember, John is a member of the church. And look at what happens to him here. Heaven's door opens. There's the sound of a trumpet. And John is invited to come up. That sounds like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, doesn't it? The day that Jesus descends in the clouds and the church is caught up into heaven. I believe that Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 speaks of the rapture. Note in Revelations 2 and 3, the term church is used 19 times, but not once does it appear in chapters 6 through 19. Hey, the New Testament teaches that before judgment comes down, the church will go up. Jesus will snatch away his church. The church is in heaven when tribulation, great tribulation, rocks this wicked world. And John is included in the church. Thus, from heaven's press box, John is going to report to us on the future. First, though, he describes his surroundings in chapters 4 and 5. His surroundings in heaven, he takes us on a tour of the king's crib. John starts in verse 2. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. Now, all this happened immediately. You know, so often we think of the rapture as sort of a slow ascent. Our feet feel light. We have this liftoff. We're floating through the sky, past skyscrapers and then birds and then clouds. But that's not how it's described in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 52 tells us that the rapture occurs in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's immediate. A blink takes one fiftieth of a second. I imagine the twinkles even faster. John was taken to heaven immediately in the twinkle of an eye. And then when he opened his eyes, he tells us what he saw. Behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. Now imagine what John could have written about. Portals into the inner workings of the universe. Vistas of unseen heavenly bodies out in deep space. Bizarre angelic creatures. Detailed blueprints of the mansions that we'll inhabit. Streets of gold, saints of old, mysteries untold. But that's not the feature that grabs John's attention. His eyes are fixed on a centerpiece. Everything in heaven revolves around a throne and its occupant. As vast, as beautiful, as magnificent as heaven must be, it is dominated by a single throne and its ruler. Listen to John's description. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Jasper sparkles like diamonds. Sardius is a deep ruby red. In other words, vivid colors are bursting out of the throne of God. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. You know, a rainbow provides the whole spectrum of color. Here it's framed. The throne is framed in emerald green. On earth we're treated to half rainbows, but in heaven a circular rainbow surrounds God's throne. And then around the throne were 24 thrones, miniature thrones that is. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. Clothed in white robes. And notice on top, they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, John was not, was not the only person in the Bible who was given a glimpse of God's crib. Ezekiel and Isaiah received a similar vision of heaven. But here's what none of the Old Testament visionaries saw these 24 elders. You remember, Ephesians 3 told us that the church is a mystery. It was hidden from the Old Testament prophets. And this is why in the Old Testament, the visions of heaven, in the visions of heaven, the elders were absent. I believe these elders represent the church. Here they're clothed in white robes of the righteousness of Christ. You remember in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus promised his disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones. In fact, he promises all faithful believers that one of our rewards will be to rule with Jesus one day. Boy, I hope that God rotates his elders in heaven like we do here at Calvary Chapel. Maybe after a hundred billion years, I'll get a turn. Well, again, they wear crowns of gold on their heads. This is the Greek word stephanos, not the kingly crown, but the victor's crown. It's the wreath placed on the head of the Olympic champion. It's the one, the reward for the one who prevailed. And these crowns are rewards that Jesus passes out to his faithful servants. You know, the New Testament mentions various crowns. This provides us an incentive to serve the Lord. We can win a crown. And it's vital that we do, as we'll see later. Verse 5 tells us, "...and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices." Now notice God's throne is not a peaceful pastoral retreat. No, it's a charged atmosphere. Color radiates, energy pulsates. It's as if the throne is plugged into an electrical outlet that's sending in high voltage current. Lightning cracks and thunder rolls and voices of all sorts shout from God's throne. God's throne in heaven is like uh, Mount Sinai on steroids. You know, in the Old Testament, God, his manifestation shook the mountain. Well, here the glory of God literally shakes the foundations of heaven. We're told seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we talked about earlier. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, a huge sea set motionless, not a ripple. Imagine the acoustics as the lightning and the thunder and the voices all reverberated off the reflective water. I mean, this was a sensory experience unrivaled by anything that John had experienced on earth. I mean, even today, with all of our pyrotechnics, we couldn't produce such a scene. Here's a color and a light show, complete with surround sound. God's throne is like an uncontrolled, overheated reactor. It's boiling and it's growling and it's rumbling and sparkling and glowing. Where did people ever get off with the idea that heaven is boring and drab? That it's a labyrinth of sterile white hospital corridors. Or it's a bank of fluffy, puffy, cumulus clouds. Where did we ever start thinking of heaven like that? Nothing could be further from the truth. When I imagine heaven, I think of Jesus' promise to the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That Persian term, paradise, it referred to a walled garden in the desert, a surrounding uh, that, that encompassed the oasis. Rich sheiks would build a wall around their oasis. Outside the walls was nothing but sand and dust and barrenness. But within the garden, there was lush vegetation. And delicious fruit trees and shady palms and underground aquifers and springs that had turned into fountains and places, little arbors where you could retreat and relax and enjoy the fellowship. Hey, when Jesus talked about heaven, he was referring to an oasis in the midst of the desert, a beautiful walled garden. You know, this earth is a gorgeous place and God created it in six days. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them. He's now been working on heaven for 2,000 years. Imagine if Jesus made this earth's beauty in less than a week. Boy, after 2,000 years, heaven is going to be heavenly. God's crea boggles our brain. Heaven explodes with color and light and sound. The sound of a big budget rock show. Trust me, heaven is going to blow away all your stereotypes. And John doesn't just describe the appearance of God's throne, but he also is impressed with the activity that's going on around that throne. There's perpetual motion here. Heaven is eye-popping, but it's also feet-hopping. Heaven is a happening place. No one is standing idly by. No one has his hands in his pockets. No one is in heaven twiddling his thumbs. No one in heaven is bored or confused. No one's in heaven saying, duh, what's next? Everybody knows what to do in heaven. All heaven is consumed with one activity. John reports in verse 6. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Here's a creature with a head on a swivel. It never dozes off, never takes a nap. Its eyes are always on the target. You know, it's interesting to me that what has been all but forgotten by the vast majority of people on earth, the throne of God is all the creatures care about to gaze at in heaven. Not once does anyone in heaven tune in Fox News. Or catch the scores on ESPN. Or see how their stocks are doing. Not once does anybody check Facebook or Twitter. Or even browse Pinterest. Can you believe it? No, they are solely mesmerized by one thing. By the glory of God. At the time of this vision, John was still an earthling. His feet were still planted on terra firma. John still had earthly interests. But when he saw heaven, all that he had thought about before took a back seat. All that he could look at and talk about now was God in his throne. And when he returned from heaven to Patmos, I can promise you, he never saw life on this earth the same way again. This world is a jungle, but it isn't as appealing nor is it as foreboding once you see that Jesus is the king of the jungle. Well, the creatures that John sees, they not only have eyes in the front and in the back, but notice their faces. They have faces. He says, the first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, these four faces represent attributes of God. Here's a four-by-four advertisement for the glory of God. God is like a lion, His power and His majesty. He's like a calf, his service and his sacrifice. He's like a man, his creativity and his intellect. He's like an eagle. His wings glide through the heavens and he's sovereign over all. You know, it's interesting. The gospel also paints this picture of God. Matthew depicts Jesus as the king of Judah, the lion of Judah, the king of the jungle. Mark depicts him as the suffering servant. Luke as the perfect man. And of course, John as the son of God. Sovereign over all. And then verse 8 continues. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. You know, in the Bible, there are two types of angels mentioned. They're the cherubim and the seraphim. And both are warrior types. They're fearsome. Men who see them melt like wax. In the Old Testament, a single angel killed 186,000 soldiers in one night. You remember, Ezekiel saw cherubim with four faces, like here in verse 7. Isaiah saw seraphim with six wings, like here in verse 8. Apparently, John sees some kind of hybrid, a cherubim or a serabim, not sure. These living creatures, though, they're special ops angels that guard God's throne. They're heaven's secret service. And notice their movement, their vigilance. They never stop. They're always on duty. Notice verse 8. And they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. These angels praise God for his holiness. Three times they shout holy in deference to the triune God. And they acknowledge his timelessness. God dwells outside the time domain. He is the God of the past. History is his story. He's the God of the present. He is the great I am. And he is the God of the future. This world is spiraling headlong to a climax that serves his purposes. He was and is and is to come all at the same time. Well, heaven is full of activity. And John notes that it's not... All spontaneous, rather it's a synchronized response. Heaven is all a buzz, but it's an ordered buzz. John describes what happens in verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. In other words, that's the cue at that very moment. Then the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Man, this whole chapter has been leading up to verse 10. You need to know the priority of heaven is the worship of God. And notice this worship. One thing's for sure, it isn't passive. The elders, they fall on their faces, they lift up their voices. Sadly, I've been to churches that are more like a morgue. Think of an old, tired hound dog, he rarely budges. He's back and forth from comatose to dead, from dead to comatose. In contrast, have you ever seen an energetic little puppy? There's enthusiasm and expectation and awe and joy and energy. Doggone it. When we worship God, we need to be more like puppies. Worship is not a time of the week or a place to meet or a program that the church follows. Worship is a verb. It's something that we do. It's our response to the living God. Understand what worship looks like in heaven. These colossal, battle-hardened, angelic creatures who if you met in a blind alley, man, they would strike fear in your heart. They're all jettisoning now back and forth, hovering like a Black Hawk helicopter right over the throne. They never rest. And then distinguished elders, I mean heroes of the faith, they fall on their faces They collapse before the king and cast their crowns at his feet. And they cry out God's greatness. I'm telling you, worship is heaven's most serious business. And then notice specifically these elders. They cast their crowns before the throne. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that all believers will one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There our works will be tried and our motives screened. Did we serve the Lord to promote ourselves? Was pride or selfishness involved? Or did we really do it for Jesus? And crowns will be rewarded to us accordingly. Now I've heard some Christians say, man, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to be glad I'm there. I'm not worried about a reward. And that, my friend, is a very short-sighted perspective. Worship is the reason I work and I serve the Lord. I'm trying to rack up just as many crowns as I possibly can. Because one day, I don't want to be caught with nothing to give Jesus. For all of a sudden, we are going to see the king. We are going to see the nail prints in his hands. We're going to look up and behold the scars in his brow. And you, when you see that, you will be instantly overwhelmed with what Jesus has done for you. It will reduce you to tears. You'll be lying there before him, nothing but a pile of melted gratitude. And then out of the corner of your eye, you'll see them, those elders. They'll be casting their crowns down at Jesus' feet. And you'll think, yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to show my gratitude and my love for Jesus. I'll give him my crowns. But what if you got no crowns? What a frustrating feeling to finally be in a position to give back to Jesus a little of the love he's given to you, and you're empty-handed. I can't imagine a more humiliating moment. Verse 11 tells us that the elders cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Here I love the old King James Version. It says, Thou hast created all things, and for that pleasure they are and were created. Here's why you and I were created. For God's pleasure. To please God. You are never more fulfilled than when you are pleasing God. And until you accept why you're here, how will you ever determine which way you should go? You see, God is calling us back to that for which we were created. To worship God and to bring him pleasure. The elders in heaven, they tell us that we were created for God's pleasure. And oh my, you need to listen to your elders. You know, you've seen the slogan, I play, therefore I am. It's on some t-shirts and things. The idea is that life is all about leisure, fun, good times, but the motto is one letter off. It should read, I pray, therefore I am. The reason you exist is to fellowship with God, to bring him pleasure, to bring honor to his name. Think of a fish on the dock. You just caught it, just took it off the hook, you laid it there on the dock. Look at that fish, it's strained, it's drying up, it's dying right before your eyes. But then you decide, well, I'll just throw it back. And so you reach down and you drop it back into the lake. Suddenly it comes to life. Why? Because fish were made for water, not for docks. And so it is with us. Apart from God, we're like a fish out of water. But get us in fellowship with God and we come to life. It's what we were created for. We were created for his pleasure. We were created to worship God. Well, that's chapter 4. Chapter 5. Now, a big part of the American dream is home ownership. Everybody wants their house on the lake, their big house. Everybody wants a house in America. In fact, here's a list I found entitled, Reasons to own your own home. Number one, a home is a durable investment. Number two, it offers significant tax benefits. And number three, it allows you to accumulate equity. Now let me give you three reasons why an apartment might be a good idea. Number one, stuff breaks and if you own it, you fix it. Number two, grass grows and it has to be mowed. And number three, one word, I really can't bring myself to say it. I'm just going to have to spell it to you. P-A-I-N-T. An awful word. In reality, the notion of actually owning your own piece of property, it's a myth. In fact, it flies in the face of Revelation chapter 5. Because here Jesus lays claim to all the earth. You don't own anything. God owns everything. Here we learn how the transaction occurred. This is the land acquisition that supersedes all of the real estate deals. I can say I own my parcel, but Jesus holds the deed to planet Earth. We're all just squatters. Revelation chapter five revolves around seven S's. We're going to see a scroll. We're going to hear a sob. We're going to see a sibling. We're going to see seven seals and some scars, And then the supplication of the saints. And then we're going to hear a new song. Pay attention. Here, Revelation chapter 5 is one of the Bible's great chapters. First, John sees a scroll. Verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. The only other biblical reference to a sealed scroll is found in Jeremiah chapter 32. And there it is a title deed to a parcel of land. Ancient deeds were written on double-sided scrolls or they're called epistographs. Written on the outside was the legal description of the property and its owner. The inside consisted of the covenants and terms that were required to take possession Often these scrolls were lengthy, and they were bound at intervals with waxed seals. This scroll had seven seals. When a property changed hands and the price was paid, the seals were broken. The parcel belonged to the new owner. But now the breaking of the seals disclosed the steps that he had to follow to take possession of what he had purchased. The scope of interest in this deed indicates that it's a very strategic document. Its appearance in heaven tips us off to the fact that it's the deed to a very significant real estate property, that the transaction that's about to take place is very important. We learn that the deed is about to change hands. Verse 2, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to even look at it. We see a scroll and now John sobs. Why? Because no one is worthy to enforce the deed. Obviously this real estate venture is an agonizing experience for John. In fact, every real estate deal I've ever engaged in has been an agonizing experience. If you ever bought a house, you know it's an ordeal. You shop the listings, and then you inspect the properties, and then you negotiate a price that can take months, and then you apply for financing, which can take even longer, and then there's the survey and the title search, and then a mound of paperwork. Oh, my. Buying a house is exhausting and stressful. It can bring you to tears. Like John, it can cause you to sob. And yet John's sobbing is a bit different than ours. For it's not the process that causes John to weep. It's what's at stake here. You can't overestimate the value of this property. You see, I believe like many Bible students that the scroll in Revelation chapter 5 verse 1 is actually the title deed to the universe. Realize God is into real estate. Did you know that? He gave a tract of land to Abraham. He then subdivided plots to Jacob's 12 sons. He set aside a tract for David's heir to build the temple. God enacted laws governing the ownership and transference of real estate. From centuries before, before Christ until century 21, get it? Century 21? That's, that's today. God is the realtor, the great realtor. And and up until now, he's dabbled in real estate all in anticipation of the final deal that occurs here in Revelation chapter 5. And yet John is sobbing because he sees no one worthy to open the scroll and take possession of the universe. You know, when God created the heavens and the earth, the crown of his creation was mankind. Man was made in God's image. God put the first man and his wife, Adam and Eve, in the garden to till and to cultivate it and to eat its fruit. And because he loved the man and the woman, he gave to them dominion or supremacy and control over the entire earth. You remember in the naming of the animals, man expressed his authority over the animal kingdom. I mean, you can't imagine the beauty of life in the garden. Work was no sweat. All Adam and Eve had to do for food was just pick fruit off of a tree. They inherited a perfect utopia. You know, we're so used to disappointment and pain and injustice all around us, and illness and corruption that we can't imagine what life was like before sin entered into our world, before sin contaminated our world. But we ruined paradise. Adam listened to the snake and rebelled against God, and instantly life changed. Everything under man's dominion began to buck against his authority. The creation became subject to randomness. Mother nature went nuts. Hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis now plague us. And ever since, Satan has had a field day. After the fall of man and the fall of creation, Satan has taken advantage. Since man is now blind to God and the things of God, Satan preys on our ignorance. We're easily snookered. And deceived. And Satan has wrestled the world from man's control. Today it's obvious that Satan has at least semi-control over the world that we live in. Jesus acknowledged this in John chapter 12 verse 31. When he referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Satan is the usurper. When mankind divorced himself from God, Satan stole control of the neighborhood. In Matthew chapter 4, remember, Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world. All Jesus had to do was just worship him. And of course, Jesus rejected the devil's diabolical deal. But it's interesting, Jesus never questioned his right to make the offer. For Jesus knew that this world is in Satan's clutches. And this explains the awful shape that our world is in today. Our condition is not God's fault. If you have blamed God for the cancer, or for the crime, or for the injustice, or for the child abuse, or for the senseless accidents, or for war, or for famine, or for birth defects, or for Alzheimer's, or for the terrible Super Bowl this year, then you owe God an apology. For the world today is not as God created it to be. It was gifted to man, but then stolen by Satan. The miserable conditions that we live in today are the result of man's dominion and Satan's influence, not the governance of God. This world was given over to man, then forfeited to Satan. And as a result, John sobs. I I I like the paraphrase of verse 4. It says, I wept And wept and wept. Remember, it was a strong angel who offered the challenge who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? I mean, immediately the situation looks grim. This is a strong angel, maybe an archangel, and he can't open the scroll. If strong angels are out, then who's left? I mean, a human would certainly be a step down from a strong angel. Not even a Moses or a David are as strong as strong angels. Verse 3 makes it official. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, that's about everywhere, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. They can't find anyone worthy enough to even give it a gaze. No wonder John cries like a baby. Reminds me of the newlyweds who went shopping for their first house. The kids didn't have much money. They told the realtor their salary. Then they asked, do you think there's a house out there in our price range? The agent answered, yes. Its current owner is a German shepherd named Prince. And this is why John sobs profusely, all mankind is in the doghouse. Which brings us to a third S the sibling i told you about you see god knew that man would foolishly throw away his dominion so early on in the annals of israel god enacted laws that governed the ownership and the transference of real estate even adding provisions for ownership and for redemption every property transaction in israel came with a clause a redemption clause The original owner retained the right to buy back the land if he could afford the redemption price. In ancient Israel, families lost their land in two ways. Either the owner died without an heir or the land was used as collateral for a loan that couldn't be paid. And if the owner was unable or even dead, a sibling could step in and redeem the land and keep it in the family. This sibling, this relative was called the Goel, or the Sibling Redeemer, the Kinsman Redeemer. John knew these laws of redemption, God's laws. And this is why he scans heaven for a rich relative, for someone who's worthy to open the scroll. He fears that this fallen world will stay stuck in its fallen state. And that's why he sobs. But suddenly, one of the elders, one of those elders, those 24 elders, he walks over, and he throws his arm around John, and he says, cheer up, Johnny. And John never forgot the good news that he received. Verse 5, but one of those elders said to me, do not weep, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. There is one who has prevailed. There is a lion from the tribe of Judah who has matched the requirements, who has satisfied the terms of redemption. He is the one who can bankroll the scroll. Revelation 5 verse 5 is one of the most strategic moments in the history of the universe The opportunity to take back this fallen world is about to expire when suddenly one emerges who can right all wrongs and redeem all that's been lost. He is the Lion of Judah and he is the Root of David. The ancestral tree of Israel's kings had the family of David as its branch and the tribe of Judah as its trunk. Jesus was born a man both of the right tribe and of the right family, of Judah and of David, this gave Jesus the perfect pedigree to be mankind's sibling redeemer. Jesus is our rich relative. And he's rich in righteousness. Through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, he earned enough equity and righteousness to pay the debt our sin had cost. Put it all together and Jesus has the credentials to pop open this scroll and to loose its seals. And understand his motivation here. Jesus endured the brutalities of the cross. Not just because he wanted to buy back a chunk of land. Jesus owns plenty of planets. No, a parable in Matthew 13 reveals Jesus' real incentive. There he said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. The man buys the land. Why? Not to possess another field, but for the treasure that has been hidden in that field. And friends, we are God's treasure. Jesus loves us. This is why he has bought back the earth, to make us members of his family. Which brings us to the fourth S. What about these seven seals? Jesus doesn't just open the scroll. He breaks these seals. Little wax seals bound up this deed. You see, it was one thing to buy back a piece of land, but it was quite another to issue it was quite another issue to force the person living on it to vacate the premises so that you could take back control. Thus the breaking of these seven seals reveal another step toward a final eviction. I heard of a homeless man recently who pitched a tent in the front yard of the public library and refused to move. Decided that would be his home. After negotiations failed, he was taken away by force. But what if you had been en route to the library that day? When you happened to just see the police manhandling this homeless fellow, you might cry, police brutality, unless you knew the whole story. And you see, this is what you need to realize about Satan. He is a squatter. He is the interloper who refuses to move. And this is why chapter 5 is so crucial to what happens in the rest of Revelation. For Jesus is going to rough up this rebel planet. He's going to get tough. He's going to evict Satan, his demons, and the legion of humans who've joined in their coup d'etat. Each time Jesus pops a different seal in heaven, sparks are going to fly on planet earth. Terrible judgments are going to be unleashed. But don't forget Revelation chapter 5. For Jesus holds the title deed. This world rightly belongs to Jesus. And he will eliminate everyone who stands in the way of his rule. Don't scream police brutality. Jesus has a right to take back this world. He's purchased it with the redemption price, and he will. For centuries now, a stubborn Satan has been having his way. A rebellious man has been getting his way. We live in an age that we might call the day of man, but coming soon is a time that the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. Revelation 6 verse 19 describes a period of time when God will have his say in the affairs of man Satan is going to get escorted off the premises. In verse 5, the older refers to the sibling, our Redeemer, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, the lion is considered to be the king of beasts. I like to go to the zoo and I like to watch the lion swagger as he walks. Boy, all the other animals, they shudder in fear when they hear him roar. Examine his jaws, his teeth, the sweep of his paws. The lion is a picture of courage and power and dominance and agility and ferociousness. And he is the perfect type of Jesus. There there is an excerpt from C.S. Lewis where Lucy is talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Lucy asks... Who is Aslan? Of course, Aslan is the uh, Christ type in the story, the lion of the story. Mr. Beaver, he's astonished by our question, who is Aslan? He says, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. Lucy replies, is he safe? I'll feel quite nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver jumps in. That you will, dearie. Anyone who appears before Aslan without their knees knocking is either braver than most or just silly. Again, Lucy asks, but is he safe? And that's when Mr. Beaver utters, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Revelation proves that Jesus is no tame lion, Jesus will one day roar and bring the wicked to their knees. He'll clean up the mess we've made of planet earth. The righteous judge will bring order to a universe in contempt. Well, notice another S. It's a surprise. Jesus takes the scroll and ends the sob and is the sibling, and he breaks the seals. And here's the the S I'm telling you about. Whatever you do. Don't miss the scars. The elder calls Jesus a lion, but when John turns his head, we're told in verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Horns are a symbol of strength. Seven eyes speak of his omnipotence and his omnipresence. He's everywhere. He's empowered with a sevenfold anointing of the one Holy Spirit. Jesus is the king. But surprise, when John turns to look at this lion, guess what he sees? The lion looks like a lamb. In fact, the word translated lamb here literally means little lamb. Mary had a little lamb. But now he's the conqueror. He's the king. He's the roaring lamb. You know, lambs or sheep are the most talked about animals in all of the Bible. But usually in connection with sacrifice. A river of blood flowed from the temple. The only way Israel could come to God was with a sacrifice. And all those sacrifices were leading up to the ultimate perfect sacrifice. As John said of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now it's at a critical moment in the universe's history that the Son of God steps forward to take this title deed to God's creation and to open the seals of judgment. Heaven and the angels have always known him as the lion. But here Jesus appears As the sacrificial lamb. If I ask you. What are the only man made things in heaven? You would answer. The scars of Jesus. After the resurrection. Jesus showed the scars in his hands. There was a hole in his side. There were wounds in his brow. Even his face was defigured. As they had plucked out his beard. And if the wounds in his hands were visible, and they were, what about his other scars? I believe they were visible too. You remember when Mary first saw the Lord? She didn't even recognize him. She mistook him as the gardener. It's probable that Jesus' face bore marks of his scarring. Isaiah 52 verse 14 shed some light here. It's a prophecy of Jesus. It says, his visage, his appearance... Was, not, was marred more than any other man, and his form more than the sons of men. His visage was marred, physically, visibly marred. Hebrew scholars, Kiel and Delitz, they translate that verse, so disfigured, his appearance was not human, and his form not like that of the children of men. In other words, he had been beaten beyond recognition, and he still bore those scars even after his resurrection. I believe when our Lord Jesus was taken off the cross, his face looked like it belonged to a boxer who'd just gone 15 rounds in a slugfest. His body was torn and tethered as if it had been in a devastating airplane crash. Hey, if there had been a funeral for Jesus, it would have been closed casket. Thus, when John sees Jesus, he's expecting the lion. Yet, there stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Here is a lion that looks like a butchered lamb. I think we're all going to be shocked. I think we might even recoil in terror when we first see his scars. I'm not sure anything is going to prepare us for our first look into the face of Jesus. But I'm sure it won't take long for us to recall that those scars represent the price he paid so that we could be redeemed and made part of God's family, suddenly those scars will become a source of pride and a catalyst for praise. I believe when a million years has expired in heaven, we'll keep going back to those scars, and there we'll learn the depths of our Savior's marvelous love for us. The scars will always be there as eternal reminders of the price Jesus paid. But the lion, he will suffer no more. His face speaks of love, but there's fire in his eyes. Hands that cradled babies and opened blind eyes now break open seven seals that wreak havoc on the earth. And in this one moment, John's faith matures. He realizes that judgment will flow from the same spigot where mercy now streams. In heaven today, God's throne is called the mercy seat. But understand soon, it will become a judgment seat. We need to learn to see Jesus, not just as he was on earth, but as he is now and will be forever. He is more than a sacrifice. The lamb is also the king of the jungle. Before this vision, I imagine John was a lot like us. He quibbled over illnesses and life's injustices. How could a good God allow bad stuff to happen? His faith was so fragile. But I am sure that after this vision, John stopped all of his quibbling and his wondering and his doubting. He knows that soon, very soon, righteousness will prevail. Our fractured world will be reset. Evil will be punished and faith will be rewarded. From now on, John hangs not only his hopes for his own soul, but for the whole world on this roaring lamb. And John joins the heavenly host in verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And here's another S, the supplications or the requests of the saints. Realize, friend, your prayers do matter. You know, at times it's hard for us to see this truth from our vantage point here on earth. But when we get a glimpse of heaven, God's throne, guess what we find there? There is a bowl full of prayers right next to the throne of God. Don't say the prayers that you hoist up to God get lost in the shuffle or really don't matter or get ignored. To the contrary, God has put angels and elders in charge of your prayers. They are even kept in close proximity to his throne. Later, God will address this bowl of prayers. Eventually, every cry for justice and for deliverance and for blessing and for peace and even retribution is going to be answered by God but in his way and in his time, not our own. And notice our final S. It's a song. It's true. In the end, every prayer will become a praise. It may take 10 days or 10 years or 10 million years, but it'll happen. Every prayer will end up a praise. Verse 9 tells us, and they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Boy, we tend to think of the revelation as the end of things, but not so. At the end of things, they sing a new song because eternity is a bright future. And they'll forever praise the king. Well, who is this in heaven singing? Who but the church of Jesus Christ, you and me, can sing this song? Who fits this description? Redeemed out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation. That's certainly not Israel. Only the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ can sing this song of redemption That means that when the seals are broken, when the gloves come off and God pummels the earth with judgment, the church is going to be in heaven singing this new song, singing praises to God. Verses 11 and 12 provide us the lyrics to heaven's song. John writes, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's another way of saying too many angels to count. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Heaven is amazed most, not by the lion's claws or his paws or his teeth or his roar, but by those scars. For time eternal Whatever, Whenever we see his scars, we will bow once again and we will worship him with these words. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And worship never dies down in heaven. Understand this. About the time one voice fades, another eruption of praise occurs. He says, "In every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. In other words, all creation now joins with heaven in the worship and in the adoration of the slain lamb. I heard them saying, Blessed and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. And here's what I think. I think it's time for us to stop our quibbling. Yeah, you live in a fallen world, get over it. Yes, life isn't always fair. Yes, life can throw you some nasty curveballs at times. Injustices occur, accidents happen, disasters strike. Life didn't turn out the way you thought. Big deal. You know what? A grown up faith realizes that it's all just temporary that a lamb now roars from heaven who is worthy to rule, that he has a deed in his hand, and he's about to settle every score and make things right. So stop wondering, stop worrying, and start worshiping, my friend. John's few moments in heaven taught him to remember those scars, certainly. But don't you stop there. Don't just see Jesus... As he once was, but see him as he will be. John learned to hang all of his hopes for a better life and for a better world on Jesus, the roaring lamb. And there we have Revelation chapters 4 and 5.